sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined today by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Although I guess, aren't we both on summer hiatus? So does it, are, are we really at Oklahoma Christian and at Chase Law School right now, Ken? How does that work? It's even more complicated for me. I'm, I'm at University of Colorado Law School uh, this, this term, and although um, exams are now over, uh, I have not graded them yet, so I'm still I'm not quite on summer break yet. Oh, so you have you, you, see I had to turn all my grade. Tuesday was our uh, grades drop dead deadline. Tuesday at noon, uh, so you know th- that part of my uh, uh, my duties have been over. But uh, at, at one point, you know, somebody said to me, "Well, you should be the chair, right?" And I said, "Sure, I'll be the chair uh, at Oklahoma Christian for the Behavioral Social Sciences Department," which means then you just get to do more things, right? right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, you know, never you know Tuesday comes and goes, but I still am doing things. Uh, but that's okay. That's okay. I actually I enjoy being chair. I tease about that, but I actually enjoy being the chair, even though it does cause me some additional uh, pain from time to time. So when's your drop dead date for your, for your, uh, your grading? Oh, it's the 24th, but I need to get it done a bit sooner. Cause I'm actually for the first time since before the pandemic, I'm going to go to a in-person uh, academic conference um, next week. So I'd hope, hopefully have my grading done before that. Oh, okay. Well now before we get into the show, Ken, now, I am. I can't tell you how tickled I am about this. This 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 made my life the other day. It, you know, it's funny because there's been a lot of things that have kind of been like down points for me recently. This was an up point, and the up point was so. A, you know, a couple of shows ago, we kind of we kind of offhandedly talked about how you know if maybe we'd run some kind of deal where if we get enough amount of money, then we're going to get Ken on social media and specifically maybe get you on Discord. And so we actually went through with that. Right uh, for our 300th episode, right the last episode, the uh, the one before last that the that the two of us did, uh, which was a lot of fun for a lot of reasons, and we picked a number. We thought it was a little bit of a stretch, and now I don't know if you know this part, but listeners, you guys were so excited to get Ken on Discord that 24 hours after our announcement. 24 hours, we had hit the number. <laughs> I mean, there was an outpouring uh, of people. So thank you to everyone, because now not only did we get Ken on Discord, but in your words, if there was a tremendous outpouring of support. And so I thought, well, how are we going to measure a tremendous outpouring of support? And I thought, I think since we didn't tell anybody that it was 24 and in 24 we had made it, I think that's a tremendous outpouring of support, Ken. <laughs> I think we're going to have to hold you to it. So I want to thank all of our listeners who contributed to pulling Ken onto social media. It was fun to watch him on Discord. Now, but specifically, we need to mention a couple of specific people. Two specific people who just made mind-blowing contributions to get you uh, onto Discord, Ken, uh, was Andra and Dustin. And, you know, maybe they – 
I can't tell if they love you or if they were trying to torture you, but (laughs) (laughs) one direction or the other. Uh, Listen, uh, Andra, uh, Dustin, I love you guys both so much for this. Uh, you know, you guys were so committed to bring him online and, and you gave generously, but everybody also gave generously. Now, additionally, Ken, I mean, this is also just, it blows my mind. We have a new executive producer level supporter. So not only do we have people give it for that, but we have a new executive producer level supporter to help push you online. So I want to welcome our newest executive producer level, uh, which is an incredible level of support, uh, Ryan Beasley. Ryan, thank you so much for joining that kind of top echelon uh, of support. Um, and, and Ryan, I hope that this doesn't bother you, but the first thing, I, I'm curious, can did you feel the same way? Because as soon as I saw Ryan Beasley, I mean, immediately something came to mind for me. Did something come to mind? Like, does Beasley bring anything to mind for you? No, I have to confess. I'm not sure. So for me, I'm, I'm going to show my age a little bit, right? So there was a cartoon called DuckTales. And the last name was Be- like she, uh, the, uh, the, the housekeeper was Beasley. And so as soon as I saw that, Ryan, I thought, I'm going to have, is, are you, you know, the grandson uh, of Mr. McBeasley? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I tease, I tease, and I mean that. Thank you so much, all of you, um, for uh, bringing up your support uh, and for bringing Ken online. Uh, and you know, maybe, maybe for episode four hundred or something, uh, we'll have to see. You know, maybe Ken will like run across the country with me or something. I don't know. I'll have to figure that out. <laughs> Uh, and I will, since this was a tremendous outpouring of support, and I definitely thank those listeners for that. Um, I will be getting on um, more than I have been even over the course of the summer, although for reasons I just mentioned that I, I have to finish grading my exams and I have to go to an academic conference next week. Um, it might take me another week or two before I'm fully up to speed. But then uh, after uh, after late beginning in late May and certainly through the summer, at least I will um, honor that pledge to log on much more regularly and participate much more regularly on the discord page well that'll be fun so i will have to try to have some debates on there too that'll be a lot of fun well uh, again thank you to all our supporters ken thank you for being such a, a good sport and and you know being willing to put your time up on the line uh to engage with with listeners so you know i appreciate that too but i, I deeply appreciate all all of our listeners who uh, made all of this happen Okay, so why don't we get into the stuff that everybody likes hearing us talk about and not just teasing. Although, I guess, you know, we, we tease well. Uh, the, in all, for me at least, Ken, you know, the story I want to start with uh, is Liz Cheney's outster as number three as Republican. I, it has some, you know, personal aspects for me. Now, I think for a lot of people, they see these kinds of moves as being kind of inside baseball. And, and there's a truth to that. But there's more to it than that. And a lot of times it's the inside baseball stuff that can begin to help you formulate a better picture uh, and make kind of better predictions for what is going on in a political landscape, at least in my opinion. Uh, and, And Republican leadership had started to signal three weeks ago approximately some less than stellar remarks and some silence uh, uh, when it came to uh, Cheney, who's a Republican from Wyoming. Uh, and it included and, and kind of kicked off when some off-the-records remarks became on the record uh, into an open mic uh, from Kevin McCarthy, who is the current minority leader for Republicans from California. 
Then this culminated this week, uh, Ken, of course, on Friday. On Friday morning, the House Republican Caucus voted 134 to 46 uh, to replace uh, Cheney with Elise uh, Stefanik, uh, who's a Republican from New York. Now, there was a little bit of a last-minute House Freedom Caucus push to maybe outflank her um, because there was a little bit of a thought that she's maybe a little too moderate. Uh, but with the support of the remaining House leadership and the support of Trump, really no other candidate was able to move forward. Uh, Representative Stefanik's uh, comments were not surprising after her election this morning. She said, quote, We are unified, working as one team. We are focused on putting forth policies and communicating them to the American people to beat Democrats. And we are going to win the majority in 2022, end quote. Uh, she would go on to argue that that unified working as one team front uh, is, quote, suffering under the far left socialist policies of Joe Biden and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, end quote. In short, we need to get past the far left, and we're only going to do that if we unify as Republican. Now, uh, Liz Cheney was not quiet in response. She has criticized the GOP leadership, arguing, quote, I think that he, McCarthy, as she's referring to, is not leading with principle right now, quote. Uh, she said that on Thursday prior uh, to the, uh, the caucus vote this, uh, on Friday morning. She would go on to argue that the situation is, quote, dangerous, uh, given, quote, what the former president did, end quote. And that's a big part of what's happening here, which is, do we go the route of the, uh, of the we got to put it behind us and move forward and just kind of battle Dems and win elections? Or is there some kind of, of reckoning that's important there? And so I know, Ken, you know, you're not, you know, you're not a Republican on that front, uh, but what do you think in terms of, I mean, should Republicans just kind of be moving forward with this? I mean, is, is potentially Cheney wrong here that to continue to kind of fight and fuss with Trump uh, and, and look backwards is not to move forward to future elections? I mean, did she, did she throw herself under the bus or do you think that she's, like, I, I think some on the left kind of are now holding her out as maybe a, a little bit more special than they would have in other circumstances, suggesting maybe she, you know, hey, this is what we have to do. We have to continue to think about January 6th. What do you think about that, uh, 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 that balance there? Well, I guess there's, there's two different um, lenses that um, one could look at that question through. Um, one would be the question of uh, the demands of political morality, what's the right thing to do? And one would be the question of um, political tactics and what, what's the strategically optimal thing to do. Those might not give the same answer. Um, uh, so certainly, you know, as someone who believes that um, uh, Trump was responsible for the events of January 6th and that he needs to be held accountable for it. Um, I am pleased to see some Republicans, um, uh, you know, a smaller and smaller minority of them, but some Republicans, um, most most vocally Liz Cheney right now, um, uh, continuing to, to um, uh, expound that view. It's, it's, it's my view and I agree with it and I'm glad they're, they're doing it. Um, and I think I, th I think they should. Um, but, you know, in terms of um, uh, politics, um, it's that's a harder one because, you know, of course, right now, um, most Republicans still support Trump and the, the lopsided votes that we saw um, on, on the roll call vote today 
and on the voice vote the other day that removed Liz Cheney, um, th- those those represent probably the the center of gravity um, of the Republican Party. Um, but you know there is a short sightedness to that strategy too, because um, if if the Republican Party is shrunk down to only the 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 the, the fanatical Trump supporters, um, you know we already saw Trump didn't win the election in 2020. He also cost the Republicans two Georgia Senate elections in 2020. Um, and I think there there is a political downside, um, you know, in in um, making the the Republican Party uh, inhospitable to anybody who's not committed to the big lie. Yeah, and the thing that I think becomes particularly difficult, and I like that you put it into those those two buckets. I mean, and, and there is a truth to the fact that we have to ask ourselves what the right thing to do. In circumstances, and then it's not always the expedient, or it's not always the most um, power-maximizing uh, thing to do. But as I continue to look at this, Ken, I think that in this case, the two actually overlap for Republicans. I really do. I think that the Cheney view. Sometimes there are things where you have you know kind of short-term losses that lead to long-term gains, or you have short-term discomfort to lead to long-term gain. And and I can't help but seeing the Cheney view, which is is my view, being both the the morally correct one, but I think the long-game power politics question, the right one as well. And that is, as long as Trump continues to have the control over the Republican Party, nobody in the Republican Party is particularly safe. And uh, and McCarthy, I mean, if, if he doesn't recognize that he could just as easily be in the headlights, uh, he, he's an idiot. I don't think he's an idiot. I mean, he, he has to know this, and he's making a calculation. But the thing that we know is, is that there are fewer and fewer individuals. It's a huge, I want to be careful the way you phrase this, right? It's not that there aren't a lot of Trumpites, right? As a matter of fact, I think those individuals currently outnumber, clearly outnumber in the Republican Party. However, I think that that view in a bigger macro sense is simply showing that the Republican Party is not going to be able to be electorally viable if it continues to narrow itself to those kinds of voters. I've argued on this show before that I think conservative and libertarian values, which in the United States oftentimes have, past tense, overlapped, are is an expansive vote-winning proposition for a broader base of individuals. I think it reaches out to African Americans and Hispanics. I think it reaches out to younger individuals. Uh, and, and and I think the problem, though, is is that in the short term, it's probably true that in 2022, the Cheney view is is a negative one. But I think that if you have Trump come back which has been already out. I mean, we have the reports on Friday. Trump has already argued uh, Thursday evening and Friday that you know there's big things coming forward, and we can see that he's already got events uh, planned this summer, uh, clearly setting up a 2024 bid now uh, for the Republican Party. A Trump running in 2024 is a loss. 
it's either a loss or it's disastrous. <laughs> And so, I, so in, in your case, I like that you set it up that way. I guess really the only way I, I disagree is I think the long-term win is the Cheney view. Uh, and maybe you don't agree with that. I'm curious what you think, Ken. No, I think the listeners are going to get mad now because we're going to agree too much again. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I do agree with that. In fact, I think some some interesting evidence in favor of the, the view you just took is the fact that um, the, the McCarthy chose to, to run the, the vote to oust um, Cheney um, as a voice vote which is very unusual, right? The, the, the most common way to do this is, is, is a secret ballot vote. Which is That's what actually happened to um, elect uh, Stefanik. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, actually, right. A secret ballot with a roll call count, which is that that's the very conventional way to do it. And I think McCarthy actually knew um, that it would be unusually divisive if they did it the normal way, because Cheney would have got a lot more votes to keep her in um, if they did a secret ballot and then counted the votes um, than what she did, than what she got where everybody had to say I or not, uh, not, you know, visibly in a room. Um, And I think he wanted he wanted the vote to be more lopsided, not so close, not so close. And so I think that was rigged. But yet the other way it could have been done, um, and I think the second most common way to do it when, when, a, when a secret ballot isn't done, is, is a public roll call vote. And he didn't want to do it that way either, um, because it's going to be an electoral liability for um, a number of, of these Republicans, a number of the Republicans who are intimidated into casting their, their voice vote um, um, to oust Cheney um, actually wouldn't want to have to run on that in their districts if, if, they, if they're in reasonably close districts. And and so um, I think the, the the use of a voice vote allows both um, – it doesn't allow the members to vote their conscience as they could do on a secret ballot, um, nor does it um, force them to be held accountable for their, their vote as would be done on a public roll call ballot. Um, um, but it, it sort of obscures accountability while, while, you know, while at the same time, um, um, you know, intimidating them somewhat. Um, and and so I, I I think that was very much reflective of what you're just talking about that um, that if they if they really if they if the center of gravity in the in the in the congressional delegation really favored ousting Cheney they would have done it the ordinary way in in a secret ballot and conversely if they thought it was good public politics everywhere um, to 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 oust uh, Cheney they would have they would have done it on a public roll call vote but they they didn't do either. Precisely. And, I, and, I, and this is why I think on the Republican side, we need to keep pointing back to Jan 6. And I think the other thing that we need to point to, which which kicked off this week as well, Ken, was the Gats Green Tour. <laughs> uh, now, you know, generally when your closest associate has begun to turn over your uh, hush money payments to underage uh, uh, women, you, you you try to keep a low profile. But in the era of I'm going to be Trump, uh, uh, Gantz has decided this is an, an amazing time to go on a, 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 a national tour. Uh, and meanwhile, Green continues to be a combatant, including this week uh, uh, reported by a number of outlets where she has continued to be just nasty to her uh, – um, her fellow House members, including AOC, um, which apparently is something, as we as it came out this week, has happened before, uh, even before Green was in the House. So it seems to me that what we see in this kind of move is is that the that GOP is attempting, at least leadership now, is maybe trying to not make the same. They're going to see it as the mistake that they made the first go around with Trump. And hitch themselves to the the Gats and the Green side, 
uh, of what's going on. What do you what do you take for that shift? And in, 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 I'll just start there. What do you take of this kind of shift where the GOP? I mean, do you do you agree on the front here? Do you think they're trying to avoid the mistake, or at least the perceived mistake of well, we should have jumped on the Trump train sooner, so let's not bail on the Gats and the Greens. Let's bail on the Cheneys. Well, yeah, I mean, just like what we were just talking about with the the use of a voice vote rather than a um, secret ballot or roll call vote, I think McCarthy in in this context also um, is really just trying to um, be all things to all Republicans here to to play both sides. I mean, clearly he is not repudiating. uh, Is it Gates or Gates? I always pronounce it Gates, but Gates and and Green. um, He's not. I mean, actually, when the the House took the the vote a a month ago or so to strip uh, Green of all her um, uh, committee assignments after she basically committed the crime of assault against a, a, a former high school student who was shot at in in in, the, in that Florida high school shooting. Which is um, which is by the way, and I mean this does not have that's not a regular occurrence. You know, if you're not paying attention to the house, you don't generally strip people of all of their committee seats. Right, and and you know, and but I think we saw a similar division here. All the Democrats voted to do that. A few of the Republicans also voted with the Democrats to do that. Um, but the the actually about half of the Republicans, um, uh, half of the elected Republicans in the House, gave um, Green a, a standing ovation when she gave her her speech um, during during that proceeding. Um, so certainly they're not walking away from her the way they walked away from uh, Liz Cheney, right? Um, now, now, now some of the Republicans are walking away from her, um, and some voted to strip her for committee assignments. But I think the the breakdown was somewhat similar. Um, to the breakdown on the on the Liz Cheney vote, where the much larger um, uh, uh, group um, is was standing by Green. Um, you don't hear them as publicly standing by Gates right now. Um, I think because of the the kind of mystery about still what's going to what proof is actually going to come out, and I, I think they don't want to get caught short like publicly defending a guy before um, before right before. Uh, maybe some 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 proof of of of, of serious crimes co- comes out, but but I I don't know. I mean, if if this thing drags out much longer, I, I guess right now today in the Gates case, today or yesterday, um, the uh, that that um, t- county tax assessor that was his friend um, did enter a plea agreement, and so um, people are maybe expecting um, that um, some of what he'll testify to in exchange for his plea agreement will lead to some um, movement forward in the Gates case fairly soon. But if, but if there's not a forward movement in the Gates case fairly soon, I think you will start to hear um, more, you know, some some congressional Republicans um, sticking up for him again. And I, I think they're all, it's a combination of they're, they're intimidated by Trump, they're intimidated by Trump's voters, and and nobody else has really emerged uh, to take on Trump. You know, it looked at different times like McConnell or Romney might assume that role, uh, but they've both gone very quiet uh, lately. Um, and now I guess Liz Cheney has jumped into the breach, but so far she doesn't have a lot of other um, elected Republicans uh, in, in her corner. So what do you think, and then we can, we can kind of move forward, but what do you think about in the strategy here on the strategy front? Again, you kind of separated those two, and that's one of the things we're seeing in the comments from the new number three, which is, you know, this move is positive because we're going to, her words, win the majority in 2022. So in the short term, what do you think this this uh, division where the Trumpite, uh, the Jan 6 down players, what does that mean for elections in 2022. I mean, it seems like a ways off, but House elections are fast. 
we're going into the summer of 2021. Uh, you know, this is uh, real kind of electoral things are going to be happening in somewhere in the realm of about uh, six, seven months. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to sort that out from other issues that are going to influence midterm elections. You know, we we did just have a census. There is going to be redistricting. There's going to be some fresh gerrymandering. Um, there's historic trends that um, say that the president's party typically loses seats in, in a midterm election. So so it's hard to separate this specific issue from all of that. But I do think that the that um, the issue generally is of great benefit to the Democrats. Right. That the 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 the, the substantial majority of the American people um, uh, are concerned about. January 6th did not approve of the domestic terrorist uh, attack um, on the Capitol while the vote counting was going on. Um, don't believe Trump's big lie. And uh, and so um, to the extent that the Republicans are going to have to be in a continuous posture of defending the conduct of insurrectionists and terrorists and, and trying to stifle any um, uh, inquiries into that, I think that's a political liability for them. And I actually think there's one interesting thing that just happened today just before we started rec- recording. It's a new development. Um, but even at the time that um, the same day that they kind of had these announcements about now we've got rid of Cheney, now we've got Stefanik in here, now now the party's going to be um, unified um, based around um, a uniform uh, d- defense of, of Trump and downplaying of the insurrection. The, the same day that that happened, um, the, the, there actually was a great show of disunity on that issue, um, which is that the um, um, uh, w- one of the House committees, I think it's the House Oversight Committee, um, did reach an agreement between the um, Democratic and Republican leadership within the committee um, to authorize a January 6th bipartisan commission and to, and to limit the scope of, um, uh, of the inquiry to January 6th itself not to include things like the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer that the Republicans had been asking for. And and then McCarthy immediately um, came out after that announcement and said he was shocked and opposed to this and that nobody had checked with him and he doesn't want this commission formed along those lines. So that's actually a massive show of Republican uh, disunity um, uh, on the same day that they're announcing Republican unity on this issue. And I think that's reflective of the idea that um, for any Republican who's not in a very safe district, um, it, it's 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 a political liability to have to defend the insurrectionists of January 6th. Yeah, I think maybe where we agree on the long term, maybe we have a little shade of different agreement. I my feeling is is that, and we need to see some more polling. And you're right, I mean because there's so many other moving parts for 2022. It, it's a difficult. Um, it's a particular difficult progno- uh, uh, prognostication, but we have to we we can't underestimate. I think the number of individuals who make up some of these districts who are Trumpers, and you know when you talk about the majority of citizens, and this goes back to something. As a matter of fact. Um, you know, we were talking about, oh man, it's been months ago now. We were talking about electoral politics and the electoral college and straight votes versus party votes. Um, while you know, it might very well be the case that there's a majority of people, where they exist and how they'll vote, that will be interesting. Um, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, let, let me just say it about that, though. Of course, you're right in the big picture, right? There's There's 435 seats in the House. No more than 40 of them are actually competitive, right? But 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 I think that within the 40 that are competitive, um, that that is where all the action is going to be in 2022. And I think in in those districts, um, 
this issue benefits Democrats in in other in in, in the in the other um, uh, um, uh, 395 districts. Of course, I agree with you. They're just going to go the way they go. Well, okay, then in that case, we would agree on that. And, and but I do hope, and this it seems weird from the guy who doesn't uh, go in that direction. But I hope once again that Republicans can lose for the good of the Republican Party. <laughs> uh, we we desperately, desperately need to see a loss there because a win in those competitive seats, if, there, if it happens to move in that direction for any particular set of reasons, a primary lesson learned is going to be that, that the Republican Party is the Trump Party. And, and I really think 2022... And so maybe maybe we disagree here or not a little bit. Maybe maybe you you've already thought it's in past the Rubicon, but I think that 2022 is really the last gasp for the the Cheneys and myself to have any kind of hope to see that that can change. I, I, I don't hold out any hope for Republicans uh, being anything other than the a nationalist or a Trumpist party if we can't. I had hoped. In, in, you know, more recently in the presidential election, that it could go that way, um, and, and instead, in all honesty, I think it solidified many people's uh, position that we need to be that kind of party, um, and there just isn't a place for me in that kind of party. Uh, and so, I don't know, but yeah. What, so, we, so just your last thought there: Do you think twenty twenty two, or are we, or, or do you think we're already yeah. past that Rubicon? No, I, I think we're past that. I think the the, the decision to oust Cheney sort of locks that in for 2022. The, the Republicans are trying to brand themselves as a Trumpist party without a lot of room for uh, variation from that. However, I actually, you know, it, to the extent that you had, a, a from your side, an optimistic view that the party could change, um, I don't disagree with that, but I, I don't, I just disagree with the timeline. I actually think that could happen, but only after Trump is completely gone from the political scene. Um, you know, and whether that takes for him to, you know, he is an old man in bad health, you know, and, and so he's <laughs> not going to live forever right, and he may true. even you know he may even you know at a certain point um just become a little bit too um uh infirm and elderly to to keep this up but but i i think you know that's not going to happen in the next few years i i don't believe he's going to actually run for president in 24 but i think he's going to keep acting as if he is um right up until spring of 24 because um he is um fundraising he's 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 got um political action committees and campaign committees um he uses those as um uh, both a way of um, exercising uh, political power over other Republicans and also of grifting and lining his own pockets. And he's not going to give up any of that by announcing too early that he's not running. But um, it's just hard for me to see how he actually could run again uh, in 24. Now, here's one thing I think we do disagree on, uh, uh, Ken, and that is, is I think that Trump definitely runs in 2024. And I think the arguments that you make there are all very valid uh, and they're straightforward, but they were also... I mean, that, that might as well have been somebody talking in 2014, in 2015, <laughs> you know, right? Well, and yeah. I, I, okay. so, and on that front, I think what we've learned from Trump is is that his ability to, to grift, uh, it was never better than when he was in office. And I think one of the things that everybody assumed was is that he would be to either 
terrified, overwhelmed, or not willing to take on the mantle of the presidency for those kinds of purposes. But he's already demonstrated that, that he's more than willing to ignore the duties of the presidency if it advances other kinds of interests. I'm, I'm not sure why he would, uh, he would uh, end up pulling out, because if he, if he doesn't run, then he, he, he ends up putting a de- he puts his own deadline on it in a way that if he runs, he, I think, has a long, longer longevity in that fundraising van. Yeah, I, I think I halfway agree with you. I think you're right that he wouldn't be afraid to to be president again, and he would see that as a great opportunity for for more grifting and just for being the center of attention, and all that. I think what he'd be afraid of is that he will lose again because he will. I mean, he he lost in 2020. He'd lose worse in 2024. So you think his ego is going to, in other words, step in and say, "Wait a second, yeah. if I actually run and I lose, then I'm a two time loser." Yeah, twice impeached, twice defeated. It would be the the, the most he humiliating. Didn't lose. And that so here's where I think is he didn't again. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm talking from the point of view of Trump, right? I want to be clear about that, right? I, you know, he didn't lose in 2020, right? And so uh, I don't know if it, I mean, did his ego really take that? I mean, does he, one very real possibility is is that he's internalized that lie to the point that it is his own truth, right? I mean. Um, it's a possibility. Yeah, well, that, that that could be, but he's still going to be, um, you know, there's going to be polling data and things like that. Um, you know, I, I think he will. It's not just that he'll be going on his own hunch about whether he can win or not. Um, you know, th- these political organizations do um, uh, polling. There's going to be polls published in the in the newspapers and things like that. And it, I think it'll just be brought brought to his attention day in and day out um, that he can't possibly win. Um, conditions were much better for him to win in 2020 than they would be in 2024. Well, goodness, there's so much to talk about there, but it's so much speculation. We should probably move forward. Uh, but that all assumes that, uh, uh, it depends on who is the democratic nominee as well, but we'll just put a pin in that for now. We'll talk about that (laughs) more (laughs) later down the line. Uh, and, and just say that, uh, for, for you, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have any kind of soul searching or questioning because you know you you're you're a Democrat, right? That and, and yeah. right now, um, I, I envy you the uh, <laughs> the the peace that you have on that front, uh, and um, I'll leave that there for now. So let me move on to uh, our second story. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we actually have this uh, message. Everyone deserves nice things, but with all the markups in traditional luxury retail, high-quality goods can be awfully expensive. Quince is different. They're a one-stop shop for essential products with low design costs. They've got tees, hoodies, loungewear, pants and shorts, blouses, dresses, skirts. Unless you're a nudist, they've got something for you. And, you know, even if you are clothing optional, they've got home accessories, bedding, bath, decor, all sorts of good stuff. Quince finds the best factories and only partners with those committed to the highest production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability, which is particularly a big deal to me. And because Quince is shipping directly to you with no agents, stores, or other middlemen, you get great 100% factory direct prices on everything. I mean, I've been desperately in need of some new t-shirts, and I was really impressed by the price and quality of their organic Pima cotton selection. And My bath towels, honestly, are looking pretty ratty, too. So Quince's great prices on high-quality Turkish bath towels, they they really caught my eye. Quality shouldn't be a luxury. You deserve it. So 
Try Quince today. Get free shipping and 365-day free returns by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. Many of their collections sell out immediately, so don't wait. You can save hundreds of dollars on clothing and accessories by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. That's O-N-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash politicsguys. So our second story, Ken, is the Colonial Pipeline hack, uh, which has both been, an in, uh, I mean, in times we've been talking about infrastructure, and here's this big infrastructure question, which is, uh, you know, interesting timing all along itself. But it also follows a long string of ransomware and thinking about the politics of a technological world, I think, is an important one. As a matter of fact, on Discord, uh, you know, now that we've we've shoved you onto that, uh, <laughs> again, thank you so much, listeners. You were engaging with a listener on Discord about the the proper use of technology, and you had a particular. I, I was not familiar with this individual. What, what was the name of the individual? Uh, the, the the proper use for technology. You have a little quote even from oh. it that you had pulled. Jupiter. <laughs> it might have been. I mean, yeah. No. Now I have to. Um, uh... Let me let me let me. I, I, <laughs> appropriate technology you're talking about, right? Yes, appropriate technology. Appropriate yeah, technology. So, so yeah, appropriate technology is the concept of um, that, that you you don't always want to use the latest technology. You want to use the um, uh, uh, properly um, uh, technology that's properly tailored to the task you're trying to achieve. And that the pioneer of that was Dr. Ernst Schumacher. Um, also called Fritz Schumacher, and uh, um, and it's it's uh, yeah. So that was something I was advocating on the Discord page. I thought, okay, I see. I had that correct. Well, I mean, I, this kind of pl- I think not kind of it does in fact play into the Colonial Pipeline hack because again, we're we're in a new era. We're in a new era where even just trying to have a bill for oil comes down to computer systems and to computer network systems. Uh, as a matter of fact, last year, this maybe I don't know if this was on your radar, Ken, but Garmin, the GPS and sports wearable company, uh, demonstrated the large power of this issue uh, when ransomware held users' personal data hostage, uh, which is kept with Garmin servers, but even more so effectively brought all Garmin devices to very minimal functionality uh, because the way that Garmin uh, use their wearables and their car GPSs is everything, even if you have local devices, it doesn't talk to the local device. It has to communicate through their server. And so when they lost control of the server, uh, this effectively made all of these devices uh, nearly no- uh, non-functional in-, in the long-term sense. Uh, and in that instance, Garmin, in fact, paid the ransomware to unlock things uh, uh, after kind of a, a taunt where they were trying to get their uh, data unlocked. And so this week, of course, uh, one of the United States' largest oil pipelines was shut down as a result of ransomware. And again, maybe as a result of these high-profile wins like Garmin in the past. Now, what we also found out this uh, on Friday morning, which had originally been uh, reported by Bloomberg, uh, but then confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, was that the opening of the pipeline was uh, happened as a result of a $5 million ransomware payment that was actually made just hours after the hack. 
Further, while presidents don't normally comment on these kinds of situations, especially when there's kind of hostage money, quote unquote, uh, at play, uh, but on Thursday, President Biden did in fact weigh in uh, to inform the to inform Americans that while there is significant evidence to suggest that the hack originated in Russia, it did not appear to be a state attack on the United States. Further, Biden issued an executive order aimed at improving national cybersecurity. Now, not only has this happened on that front, Ken, but of course, this has been a chance for many on the right uh, to point at downfalls of uh, President Biden, suggesting that this is the kind of thing that happens under weak national security, something that we may get to a little bit later in the show as well. So what do you think about this, the kind of question of the infrastructure and ransomware and technology? I know that's an issue on which we do have some space between us. And then what do you think about the move uh, politically by Biden to comment uh, and what this might tell us about kind of the complicated future relationships uh, between states uh, when we start to have actors in states like Russia uh, begin to actually uh, make attacks on vital infrastructure in other countries, including the United States? There's a lot, there's a lot of questions in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Listen, this so, is a uh, small issue, Ken. I mean, we, you should be able to get that done in what, like two minutes? Come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I would say, um, you know, the the, the 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 national security aspect of it, um, you know, it depends how you think. I mean, if, if this was a, an ordinary crime, although admittedly a large and audacious crime, um, committed by um, um, criminals against uh, private companies, um, you know, even if those criminals are located over overseas, um, you know, we don't have, we've never had any kind of um, law enforcement framework in place that can prevent all crimes from happening. And right. if, if we did, we'd have a police state. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it does seem like there's, you know, the, the verdict's still out on whether this crime is going to be able to be solved and these people are going to be able to be brought to justice. I, I wouldn't say that won't happen. Um, and uh, um, also, I think the, from what I could tell, and again, it's hard for me to follow all the aspects of this um, because there's a lot that's not easily publicly reported, but it it does seem like um, the, 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 the government played a role. um, Although obviously there were other components of this, including the payment, as you mentioned of $5 million in in ransom. Um, But the, uh, the government did play a role in helping restore the functionality um, of the pipeline. So I don't, I'm not quite sure where the, the blame for the Biden administration is, is coming from here on the fact that this hack could take place. If I was going to blame the government for anything here, my blame uh, would be that, um, A, we shouldn't have um, um, so much reliance on one single company's pipeline. Um, and I think, you know, I would have favored more aggressive use of antitrust law to begin with so that we'd have, um, you know, smaller um and more uh, robust and more survivable um, delivery systems for important infrastructure, rather than um, um, you know letting letting single corporations control so much infrastructure that if those corporations are uh, attacked, that it, it causes massive problems for the country. Um, so I think I think you know the, the lack of use of antitrust law seems to me like an issue. Um, the other thing I would think that was a legal issue or, or an issue is the fact that we have Bitcoin. Bitcoin is is what was used to pay the ransom. Bit, Bitcoin 
Bitcoin exists for the purpose of facilitating crime, and and I I, I don't know why it's legal. Um, I, I think it it you know if if this ransom had had to be paid without the use of Bitcoin, it would have made it much easier to solve the crime because there would have been a financial trail through ordinary financial networks of how the how the money was moved and where it was moved. So those are some some issues I would look at in terms of um, law enforcement and national security. But but given the given that Bitcoin is actually legal. Um, and that um, it's also legal to have um, a single owner own such a massive pipeline that supplies so much infrastructure. Um, I'm not sure exactly where the, the criticism is coming from of, of the Biden administration's response. Well, on one front, you know, so let's start with, say, the, uh, you know, why do we have one company? And I understand, you know, wanting to take the, the jump to say, well, one reason is, 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 is we've allowed kind of monopolistic practice to, to occur. Uh, and I'll have to admit, I took sides on this uh, back when it happened. Now, this was not a show that the two of us did together. But one of the reasons for uh, fewer companies being able to have these is we simply have not allowed uh, additional pipelines to even exist. One of the ones that would have supplemented this particular pipeline that had been petitioned but has continually been stopped uh, would have had to have, again, crossed uh, through um, the over the uh, the Appalachian Trail, the AT, um, which there was a whole debate between well, who, which federal agency actually makes the rules for that? Is that a Park Service or is that the Forest Service? Um, and so that actually blocked the the ability to to build some additional pipeline. And I'll I'll admit, being an outdoorsman myself. Um, you know, I was happy to see that the, you know, the AT continues to remain as isolated as it has. It's a, it's a, it's a special place um, for me. But of course, there are costs to doing that. And I think this is one of those costs where, you know, you now have, there are limited number of crossings. We don't allow there to be more crossings. As a matter of fact, uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, Biden is getting some of this is, is that, it would not have alleviated this one, but of course he had shut down other uh, pipelines. And so I, I don't think that this is an issue that you can fix as easily as you suggest on the side of uh, antitrust because it's it's an infrastructure issue where there are pros and cons. Uh, and again, I, you know, on some of these, you know, I've, I've taken the opposite side, but I, I think simultaneously you then can't be upset that you have fewer companies controlling them when we haven't allowed more companies to have uh, pipeline infrastructure because there are environmental impacts to that. So, you you, I, I, you know, you have to be willing, unlike the, the position Biden took in the West, to, to open up additional pipeline uh, to make that yeah. happen. What would you say to that? Again, yeah. I mean, yeah. the AT is, a, is, is the more uh, specific example because that did, yeah. in fact, shut down a, another possible pipeline that would have been, uh, uh, you know, parallel to the to the colonial one. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I don't um, uh, actually. I, I do not advocate opening up more more pipelines. So my my, my concern about a monopoly wasn't. I, I wasn't trying to say um, we should just let people build a lot more pipelines, and then we could have a lot more redundancy and a lot more surplusage. Um, well, and more company. But, I, I was taking you know because you would have yeah, you'd have yeah. additional competition, which is yeah, what I thought I, right. you were getting at with the antitrust yeah. comments. Yes, yes, exactly. But I think that could be done by breaking up these single companies that operate these single pipelines, and uh, um, so. Um, you know, if if the if the section of it that had been taken out was much smaller, 
um, then it would have been much easier to deal with that. Um, and and so if we if we only allowed individual companies to operate smaller sections, and we had um, a lot more companies doing that, um, uh, then um, or even if we broke up, um, you know, like with the phone network, for instance, you have the the landline network, but then you have um, competition for long distance carriers who can actually access the local carriers network um, uh, to, to, to complete a call, to complete a long distance call. And that kind of regulatory framework allows for competition through um, mandatory um, sharing of infrastructure um, with competitors. And so there's a lot of different um, um, regulatory frameworks that can be brought to bear um, that would allow um, uh, competition even within single platforms like a single pipeline um, that, that would then provide for shared use of infrastructure, which would make it harder for um, an attack like this to shut the whole thing down because they'd only be able to shut down smaller components of it, which could be... But of course, if you shut down, say, a middle component of it, you have now still effectively uh, ceased the the flow, even by not hitting the, the, the whole area. And as a matter of fact, as the Wall Street Journal rightfully reports, uh, one of the other complications for the pipeline reopening, even though they did, in fact, pay the ransom, was the fact that the other uh, companies that connect uh, to this large pipeline didn't want to have the oil flow while they were still not sure about the security system of the network communication, because the way these things are paid is through computers talking to one another. Uh, and that opens up the possibility, even though they're separate companies, uh, for having the ransomware make it on to their systems. So I, 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 one of the things I'm going to push back on you on this, and so maybe you know, that way we, we agreed too much in the first story here. We can have right. a little more disagreement. I think this is an example of where, while I take uh, environmental uh, concerns very seriously, it's a very important one for me, I think many on the left – and I, I, I hear you doing this a little bit, and this is why I want to push, is you say, well, we'll be able to meet the demands of things, and we can always maximize uh, environmental concerns, but you never want to have to deal with the real-world ramifications of it. And so I think what you're suggesting here isn't really so much as of a, of a fix for the fundamental problem. It could be that we ought to say, as you suggest, uh, and, and as I, I, again, a huge supporter of the Appalachian Trail uh, and, and the AT, it might be that the benefits outweigh the cost. But I think that we have to be upfront about those costs. And I don't think you can regulate your way out of not having uh, uh, um, additional competition. And the reason you don't have competition here is an artificial governmental one, which is, is we haven't let people build uh, that infrastructure. Again, that might be the right answer, but I, I think you're kind of trying to wiggle out of the fact that that is the fundamental issue here. Yeah, I don't think it is the fundamental issue, though, because um, so although, um, you know, so so this is an unusual situation. We had this ransomware attack. It caused problems for a few days. Um, and now those problems are more or less resolved al already. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if that's the if that's the concern that, well, OK, once once every few decades, there's going to be the possibility that a crime is going to cause a disruption and that disruption is going to cause problems for a few days. You know, d d does, does wanting to avoid that kind of problem um, outweigh um, environmental protection? You know, and I think I, that's I, a better I See, I, I prefer you phrasing it that way. Uh, I, yes. I, I see because yeah. there you're actually saying, look, there are. 
there, there are costs to the kinds of environmental protections we want to take. And, and, and I think one of the problems have been that we often don't want to be honest about the benefits and cost of these things, right? It makes it makes yeah. oil a little more expensive. It could make these kinds of, as you put it, you know, five-year, 10-year kinds of attacks more possible. But I think we just need to be honest about the yeah. fact that, that, that we're going we're gonna to value this thing over the other thing as opposed well, to, hey, I think we can mitigate this with more governmental regulation. Yeah. Which is what no, I, 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 I agree that that's a potential cost of not having surplusage, but I'm just saying that's a pretty minor cost, actually. Whereas I think the, the, the argument that I mainly heard you making about you know, the benefits of having additional pipelines um, you know, since 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 we're not mainly in a situation where there's been a, a criminal cyber attack that's managed to shut down a pipeline for a few days, um, you know, I think the, the the sort of more general argument is, if we had more pipelines, and then we'd have more benefits of competition, we'd have lower prices for for gasoline. Um, I don't think it's benefit to have lower prices for gasoline. So I don't. I think that's a lose lose, right? I, I think I think that we'd be harming the environment for the purpose of harming the environment even more. And and so I, I think that, that you know, it, it, although I, I certainly agree that it's not good to have these kind of disruptions, uh, you know, I think if we generally say, well, b- because we have only only one pipeline coming through, you know, gas is you know typically would be about two and a half dollars a gallon, and if we had another pipeline coming through, maybe we get that down to two and a quarter. Even two dollars. Um, I, I see no benefit of that at all. You know, I, I think it's not good for people to be incentivized to burn more gasoline. That that just causes additional and unnecessary harm to the environment. So I, I just don't see, and, and as, as well as causing risks of, of leaks and spills and things like that. So I, I don't see that there's really, you know. So I really think the only thing we notch up on the cost side is that um, there is a little bit of a cost of having. Um, you know, not having surplusage or redundancy in the face of, you know, very unusual disruptions like we had this week. But I think that's just that's probably just worth putting up with. And I, and I do want to say I do think um, more regulation would help because, for instance, um, although I agree with you that um, even if you had um, more regulation of the platforms, that couldn't be a panacea against these kinds of attacks. Um, I think it sometimes could could be helpful because I'll, I'll use the example of telephones again where we do have that. So if, if I um, pick up my, my phone, which is served by Cincinnati Bell, and I, and I use my long distance carrier, which is Verizon, um, to call you um, in Oklahoma, um, well, if somebody attacked Cincinnati Bell, that is going to put my dial tone out. I'm not going to be able to call you. Um, but if somebody attacked Verizon, um, you know, I've still got my dial tone from Cincinnati Bell. And, and I can use a different network to reach you. So it does give some robustness, just the fact that there's a regulatory requirement that I be allowed to use a different um, long distance carrier, uh, whatever long distance carrier I want um, to carry my long distance call, because that does provide some redundancy at that leg. And so if, if an attack was made, a cyber attack against the long distance carrier, I would still have the abil- availability of different long distance carriers to complete my call. Now, I'm glad that you, again, that you set it up in that way for the environmental protection versus what we're doing. And I think you were very transparent in saying, look, that would, in fact, lead to lower costs, which and, and you're right. That's therefore, if that's the case, you're going to lead to an increase in use. Uh, and, and that's a, a, a problem uh, for long term issues in global warming. But I think, again, and here's where I think many on the left desperately need to kind of reframe a little bit the way that they're thinking about it was 
you said, I wouldn't want it to be less. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I, I think what that misses is is that even if you're going to try to have uh, a transition period to better kinds of, uh, of uh, fuels, that has not happened in a robust way yet in the United States, which is unfortunate. But, okay, so you and a lot of others <laughs> don't have to bear the primary difference of the cost between the two to the $250 a gallon. And I think where you begin to lose people and where I think there is, in fact, a space for kind of conservative libertarians who'd be willing to take seriously things like global warming to say, look, dear, like that the people being affected by that change is massive. Those kinds of cost increases are big. And so for them, I don't think you're going to as quickly or easily get them to be on board with that long-term issue of global warming when you so quickly downplay the actual pain to their daily life that those kinds of policies have on their pocketbook, right? Uh, Because those kinds of fuel increase prices aren't just for them driving the car around, but it also increases and changes their kinds of food prices. Uh, It changes the ability to ship things into the United States, and it changes consumer good prices. So while I think we agree on a a big bunch there, uh, again, I would like to see a move away, and I agree with your point that burning more fuel has hugely negative environmental ramifications. And it's clear that it does. The reason we don't see moves in that direction is I think there's that, that cavalier attitude that says, well, of course, make make gas 250. It won't change anything. I remember a, 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 a Democratic friend of mine who once uh, in the aught said, if I had my way, you know, we'd make gas $6 a, ga- a gallon, uh, and that would fix the problem. And I said, well, would you stop driving? And he said, no, of course not. I'd still drive. I can afford it. And I think that's part of the problem there is, is it doesn't it doesn't ca- take into account that the balance isn't just for the per- people that we are, but for the people who live on the margins. Yeah, I, I, I'll just pick a few bones with that. I don't think it's true. Um, so for one thing... Um, <laughs> It, when the price of gas goes up, um, that doesn't necessarily mean people have to pay more to get around because the fuel efficiency of cars goes goes up um, commensurate with that. And the more that people um, actually are worried about how much they're going to have to pay for gas, the more incentive they have to buy a more fuel efficient car. I just bought a new car this year and I paid probably 5000 more than I would have paid um, in order to get a hybrid rather than to get a traditional uh, gas burning engine. And and now that I have the hybrid, um, you know, I'm getting like 50, 50 miles to the gallon. Um, and so um, that that actually is um, in the long run, that's not going to cost me any more, um, even with the extra pi- price I paid for, for the car um, to, to, to drive around. So I, I think You're absolutely right about that. It won't cost you any more. And that's a positive thing. Uh, yeah. In the so, long so- run. Well, it's not just the long run, though. That's the that's the short run too, because these hybrids are available, and I think of new cars. They're they're probably about half the new cars that are sold now. Um, And then also on the idea that this is going to drive up prices. That if gas costs more, that means groceries are going to cost more and things like that, because um, products have to be delivered to grocery stores and trucks and all that. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, Groceries don't cost more. In, in, in Europe or, or, or um, you know, places where gasoline costs very considerably more um, at the pump. Um, and I, I just think you'd have to look harder into well, um, yeah, how be, much. Yeah, be careful on that. I, I agree with you in part, but I think you're making an oversimplified economic compa- uh, comparative analysis between the United States and Europe. 
uh, because you're talking about locations that have now already had those costs baked in. But you I mean you can take a look and track the uh, price of consumer goods to things like gasoline in the United States. And, and there's a period where it will eventually come back down when you have alternative methods of trans- transporting. In uh, Europe, that's primarily by train. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I agree that you can overcome those with different kinds of infrastructure fronts. But on the economic front, I think I, I think you'd be backing yourself into a corner to say that in, co- in the increased costs in a fixed system like ours that do not yet have those alternatives would not increase. That's just basic economics. Well, we, we have a lot of freight rail in this country too. And, and a lot of um, agricultural product does move by freight rail. Which is true. Yeah. yeah. And, and we, and we, and we also, um, you know, both here and in Europe, um, a lot of um, um, agricultural product is, is shipped in, you know, for, from other countries as well. And shipping can be used um, in, in this country even to move things around domestically. So, but ultimately I also think the price of um, getting, um, even if trucks are used and of course trucks are used a lot more, here. I'm sorry. It, I, it, you, I thought you were stopping it, and you weren't. Please continue. Please Yeah. Even if trucks are used, I think you'd really have to look closely at what component of the grocery store price is is uh, attributed back to the cost of um, trucking the goods to the store. It may be a very small component of the price so that if you you know, if you're talking about I'm just making up these numbers. I haven't really looked at it, but I'm saying this would have to be looked at. But let's say that when you when you buy an apple in the grocery store, um, that only one or two cents of that apple is attributed to the um, transportation cost to get it there. Well, then that means that if you raise that transportation cost by ten or fifteen percent, you'd be you'd be raising the, the cost of the apple by less than a, less than a penny. And so that might not be something that you'd even experience or, or notice at all. I I will reiterate. I think that here on this front, you are underestimating um, the costs. Because you, 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 and again, I don't disagree on the outcome front for what uh, what would be the good outcome front, but I think you are underestimating those costs in a way that actually ultimately hurts the ultimate bottom line for pushing people in a way that that prevents global warming. Um, because again, I think by minimizing those costs, by making that seem different, you will then not be an advocate of policies. That would, I think, actually help those kinds of transitional processes. So, for example, you're right by having higher uh, prices on gas, for example, you're going to push consumers to purchase things uh, that would do it. But you're, you're, the ones that are going to uh, uh, purchase are the ones who have the ability to pay that upfront cost at the beginning, right? So that higher monthly payment on your car at the $5,000 level or the upfront cost of potentially being able to buy that car outright. And I think you're downplaying the number of people who could even be purchasing a new car in the first place. <laughs> no, no, that's not a that's not really true because um, I, I'm not assuming that everybody could purchase a new car, but I am assuming that um, people in the market for new cars can, can mostly absorb this 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 cost, and that seems borne out by the fact that they mostly are, um, and that um, for people who aren't in the new car market, uh, you know, new cars become used cars after a few years. So this is a transition that is going to have reverberation. I mean, it's it's really only relatively new cars so. Far far, but five years, 10 years down from now, this is going to be the used car market too. Well, I don't disagree that you're going to see that push. Um, one of, wow, that's a whole nother bag. I was going to, uh, anyway, let's pause there because we, yeah, okay. we're, we're running long. 
Yep. <laughs> and I'm going to get back to used cars in one of our other discussions oh, today. Okay. So, okay. So yeah. we'll come back to used cars and batteries and yep. Elon at some other point. Yep. Um, and because the other one that, that I wanted to make sure we got on the main show uh, was this also this past week, because we continue to have followed the infrastructure, uh, Biden's in- infrastructure proposal. This has continued to evolve this week. And so I wanted us to at least touch on it uh, as we move forward. Uh, this past Thursday, uh, top Republicans in a meeting with Biden said that they would oppose any effort to raise taxes to pay for an infrastructure proposal. As a matter of fact, uh, McConnell said late on Thursday uh, that the red line is reopening the 2017 tax bill. This week, Republicans did indicate, though, uh, that they thought that infrastructure fees uh, instead of tax rate changes is what could pay for infrastructure uh, uh, updates. And they, again, pointed to that as the way to pay for their more modest $568 billion proposal. Um, that $568 billion proposal was a two-page Republican plan, uh, which looked to spend money really on just three primary areas, roads, transit systems, and broadband internet. Um, Biden uh, has not yet uh, taken your recommendation, Ken, which you argued a couple of weeks ago, and said that he needed to be bipartisan by reaching out and simply passing the bill that most people want. Uh, and rather, he argued that, at least for now, that he wanted to look and continue to see what the Republican plan would look like in its more final form by mid-May, now that there are fees attached to the $568 billion proposal. As a matter of fact, Republicans who are negotiating with Biden have called the proposal and now the fee offer as, quote, the beginning document, end quote. So what do you think about these negotiations? Biden saying, look, I'm, I'm even going to I'm happy that you have a proposal. Let's see more about it in mid-May. Uh, or do you think this is a mistake? I, I saw this as being a little bit, as I noted, a rejection of, of your potential strategy. Or maybe he's just playing a longer version of your strategy. I'm not sure. What do you think about that, Ken? I think he's playing a longer version of my strategy. Um, and I, I think the reason that he's pushed into that is that he doesn't yet have um, Mansion and, and uh, uh, maybe Cinema. You know, I'm not sure if there are others. But I think, you know, if Biden could unify the 50 Democrats in the Senate, um, his plan is to go ahead and um, pass his entire bill on a partisan line. Um, for as long as it takes for him to do that, um, there's certainly no harm in um, formally uh, continuing um, negotiations with Republicans. But, but I think it's important to realize the Republican the negotiations with the Republicans are not serious, um, and if the the, the the Republicans are not going to give him any votes, and everybody knows that. Um, so I think that all of these negotiations are about um, political posturing. That 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 Biden has kind of taken the position that. Um, he wants to do things in a bipartisan way. He wants to talk to Republicans. He wants to reach compromises. And I, even though I'm sure he knows that's not actually possible, um, he wants to go through with all the performative aspects of that. You know, meanwhile, McConnell, you know, has taken the position that um, they also um, are willing to do a deal um, that they're not being just obstructionist for the for the for the purpose of being obstructionist that they're that they're willing to talk and so even though he knows that they are being obstructionist for the purpose of being obstructionist and they're never going to do a deal and so um, so I think both sides you know have the reasons to keep this um, performative um, set of negotiations going um, to try to ultimately blame the other when 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 there's a partisan um, deal done but I think the only thing that's slowing things down now um, is that B- Biden has not. Uh, unified the, the Democrats yet. 
So you think this is just a chance for him to continue to weigh on Democrats and also have the public positive face uh, that he argued he ought to have? Yeah. And I think the one kind of carve out from that would be, which is what we saw in the water bill uh, last week or two weeks ago, that, you know, there may be, um, you know, within the 568 um, uh, billion that the that McConnell had in his bill, um, there may there may be things in there that um, McConnell will say, well, if you want to if you want to just do these things, um, pass these spending items and, and, and not raise any taxes to pay for them, we can carve that out and do that on a bipartisan basis. And I think you may see some agreements like that. But what you have to realize about that is if McConnell um, succeeds in doing those things and, and, and stopping the Democrats from doing other things on a, on a party line vote through reconciliation, then that's not a compromise. That's a complete victory for McConnell and a complete defeat for the Democrats. And so um, uh, so I think now, that's you, what McConnell... That's interesting. Why, why would you frame it in that way? Because McConnell gets everything that he actually wants and the Democrats don't. So you, I guess what your, your assumption here is, is that under... I, I, would, I would think that McConnell would rather spend somewhere around the, the realm of zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so because I think that um, they want to. They want to run on the fact that they weren't complete obstructionists, right? So, so I think, um, and, and I don't even think he wants to spend zero dollars. Like for instance, there there is a bridge. You know the bridge because you lived around here. Oh yeah. There's a bridge that goes from Cincinnati to Kentucky. Uh, four different Brent presidents, Spence. as a matter of fact, have argued that it's time to uh, yeah. have done photo ops at it. Yeah, I mean, I think McConnell will be perfectly happy to run in Kentucky on the ground that he he actually got money to fix the Interstate 75 bridge that comes across the Ohio River from um, Cincinnati into Kentucky. And uh, he did it without having to raise any taxes on anybody in Kentucky. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a few items like that where, you know, McConnell's talking about um, kind of visible projects that will benefit um, constituents of Republicans, where I don't think he wants to spend zero on that. I think he'd be happy to spend the money on that as long as there's no tax increases to pay for it. And I think those are those are the kind of things that he's got um, in his proposal. But I think I think every Democrat will understand the, the way I'm understanding it, that um, if, if, if McConnell dictates, here's the things we're going to spend money on, nothing else, and we're not going to raise any taxes to pay for any of it, it's all going to be deficit spending, um, then that is a victory for um, McConnell. And so I think that's what McConnell is angling for. And and I wouldn't say it's impossible for him that he might win that, but I, I would just say that's not a compromise. That's a Republican victory. Um, but whether he wins that or not, I think depends on these, these handful of um, centrist Democrats. I think you're underestimating the amount of GOP. I mean, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about, you know, the Trump uh, the Trump nationalist wing of the GOP. And I think you were underestimating the, their influence in these kinds of situations where now you might say, well, they, they shouldn't be having a poll. Uh, but again, you know, in it, it, over, again, now in this case, we're talking about over in the house. Uh, but I, I think, you know, um, Stefanik's comments about, you know, we, we've got to stop suffering under uh, you know, things like more spending uh, because these are far left socialist policies I think that your idea that, that that the GOP would all be unified on the desire to spend money is overblown, and as, as a result, you might see the positions of some of the uh, of G, uh, GOP leaders like McConnell, who's been around a lot more. Now, 
is he angling for a win? Of course, I don't want to suggest that. Um, but to suggest that somehow his whole caucus is going to be on board with a trillion dollars of spending and that's an easy go, I and therefore that would be just a complete win, I think misconstrues the actual um, differences in the GOP that we talked about earlier. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you said that because um, I, I realize I was being imprecise about something there. So thank you. Um, uh, first of all, um, I don't think it'll be the entire GOP caucus. I think if there's going to be a bipartisan deal, it's going to only involve 10 or 11 Republican senators. A out smaller of the portion. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so it's going to be that there's going to be that 60 vote threshold crossed. But McConnell's going to be very strategic about which, you know, if he wants to deliver the votes to so that there's 60 votes um, with 50 of them being Democratic, uh, then he's going to be able to pick the 10 Republicans who will benefit politically from that. Um, and also, I think that one of the things that Trump did do um, to, to Republican ideology um, is that um, a lot of those Trump Republicans are actually in favor of infrastructure spending. That's one of the differences between the Trump Republicans and the, the more traditional um, deficit hawk um, Republicans. Trump was not a deficit hawk in any measure. And he, no, he, used to, he used to promote these infrastructure weeks all the time, even though nothing ever got done on that front because um, McConnell scuttled it. But uh, um, the, I, I think that um, so the, the contours of this, I perfectly agree with you that the majority of Republican senators are going to vote against any deal. Um, but I, I again, I, I think all of that is performative. As I said before, I don't think the question is what the re- majority of Republican senators are going to vote. I think the question is what what are the majority of Republican senators going to be okay with McConnell doing? And I think a lot of them wouldn't mind um, having some some roads and highways and bridges paid for. Um, if they could also both, you know, vote against it um, and have have the benefits of it, um, uh, and, and that the votes are there, they're not going to be mad at McConnell for that. That's going to be the kind of thing that's um, orchestrated. Um, so, so I think I think that's what he's doing. And and I, I and I think again, I think Schumer knows that. I think Biden knows that. Um, so I would not look at any of this as a compromise. I would look at this as um, McConnell is is orchestrating. Um, the the spending items that that he thinks would be good for some members of his caucus to actually run on, and for um, his all Republicans to be able to say they weren't complete obstructionists. I mean, you, you see this phenomenon now of a number of Republicans are taking credit for um, spending items that were in the stimulus bill from back in March, which every one of them voted against, but they're still taking credit for it. Now that's true, and I and, and you know I'm not going to try to push back on that one in in the slightest. Well, Ken, you know, we <laughs> it's it's one of the things that I love about our shows is is that I'm not always sure where we're going to spend the bulk of our time on any particular topic, and I love how that just kind of organically grows as we as we talk about this. Um uh, and as a matter of fact, so as we kind of need to wrap this show up, I I want to let listeners know We've got a lot more that we were going to cover, but we're going to have to put a bunch of it in the bonus show. Um, oh, before so, we go, can I say, I, I promised earlier I'd get back to used cars and I, this was yes, the topic I wanted to get it, back to. It. So let me just say one word. So when, yeah, when we were talking about, um, um, the, 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 um, possible possibility that we're going to see increased deficit spending on some form of infrastructure bill, um, without, um, uh, tax increases, um, you know, when, when, when you and I were corresponding earlier about today's show that, that, um, did raise the subject of inflation, which we didn't actually get to in our discussion just now, no. but I, I did I did look into that a little bit because there has been 
unusually high inflation in the past month. And um, there is some discussion about whether that's uh, attributable um, to the, the stimulus bill in March, mm-hmm. sort of injecting a, a lot of money into the economy without um, that doesn't represent um, actual increases in um, output in the economy and whether that's causing um, in- inflation. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't know the answer to that because um, there's a lot of other things going on with the pandemic ending and people wanting to suddenly start spending money on things where there'd been supply chain problems and things like that. But I, but I looked into where the inflation was and wasn't. And the thing that interested me was that the number one um, most inflation in any in any sector of the economy right mm-hmm. now is in the used car market. Really? So, you know, yeah, we had 4% inflation um, in a month, which is very high. But in that same month, um, part of that 4% represents that there was 10% inflation um, in the used car market. And and I think that that's interesting because the, the used car market actually doesn't represent um, economic output in the ordinary sense. You know, it does in the sense of commercial sales, but not in the sense of manufacturing, right? The, the used cars aren't being manufactured. They're, they're already existing. And, um, and it just made me wonder how to think about that. And I don't really have a strong um, um, theory about it, but, you know, maybe more of a hypothesis. But I, I was wondering whether that means that, um, you know, you might think of used cars as something where, you know, during the course of the pandemic, um, if people who, who needed needed cars actually didn't need them right away because they didn't have to go anywhere, go out to work. They could work from home, and so they they, they could delay um, purchasing um, a, 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 a new uh, used car, um, even if they had a lot of problems with their old car because they didn't have to drive as much. And so, um, if, if that hypothesis is true, and I don't know if it is or not, um, it's just one I came up with. But if, if that hypothesis is true, then that would be interesting because I think that would make, make it make it seem, at least to me, that the 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 large increase that we're seeing in in the used car market is more related to the um, delay in purchasing and then the pent-up demand caused by the pandemic um, than caused by the um, um, extra money that's sloshing around. Um, although I could see arguments on the other side of that as well, you know, that maybe people have more money now and so they, they got stimulus checks and things, the so they go out and get the car. Yeah. Yeah, so that, so I really I really couldn't figure out how to think through that, but I and I was actually wondering if you had any initial thoughts on that. But well, I'll but be I honest, did... I, I I watch kind of inflationary things for market reasons pretty closely, and I was one of the reasons I didn't want to get too much into it this week was I didn't feel like I had enough longitudinal data yet to really make a case. But that's interesting you bring it up. So maybe that's something we'll have to do on our next show and see kind of what the next few weeks on inflation brings if they continue to remain at the levels they are. I think that's probably a different kind of indicator um, than if you just have a a month spike, which would probably suggest some different kind of, uh, well, anyway, but yeah. That I, I didn't, but I had not looked at the car thing. And the one last thing I'll say about that, though, Ken, is is that it makes me happy. I don't know about you know your particular lifestyle, but um, one of the ways that I attempt to kind of live my environmental principles is is I walk uh, or, or go other ways. Now, biking is not really a possibility for me right now because <laughs> of my health problems and where they're located. Um, but um, you know, I walk to work and I, you know, I run commute to the store and that kind of stuff. So I guess I'm happy to hear that I don't have to worry about that car purchasing thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd have to pay a lot if you tried to buy one right now. I don't need a car. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep walking OKC. So we're good on that. Well, Ken, uh, listen, thank you so much for doing this show. I want everybody to know who's listening. We love doing this show. And this week, Ken and I, we're going to have a bunch of things on the docket for the bonus show. 
We're going to be talking more about the Senate with Schumer and McConnell uh, over uh, uh, S1. Uh, one of the things that Ken and I always look at, Israel, this week, an important question both in terms of Israeli politics, but increasingly potentially in terms of U.S. politics. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, we're also going to take on some uh, uh, some listener questions and more. So it's going to be a packed bonus show. So now we've already got Ken on uh, Discord, but if you want to be able to access that bonus show uh, or our Discord channel so that you can be a part of the ongoing Ken conversation, that's, I got another hashtag for us. Conversations with Ken or Ken conversations. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So if you want to be a part of the ongoing Ken conversation, uh, <laughs> you will need to become a supporter. So if you want to check out all of the benefits, like talking with Ken directly, uh, you can go to the uh, for the politics guys. You can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys. Or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join myself and Ken again on Wednesday uh, and or on Discord by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. I also want to note for some people, there's just not that financial ability to become part of the Politics Guys. And if that is the case, you can always email mike at politicsguys.com and tell him about that so that you can still listen uh, to the uh, to my and Ken's show. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And of course, for supporters, we're on Discord. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and newly this week, Ryan Beasley. Thanks, Ryan. Today's show was produced by me, Troy Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.